Good morning. Sometimes you, as you're preparing a sermon, you get the feeling that Satan doesn't want you to deliver it. Particularly, uh, he throws things at you. You have a hard week, a hard fortnight, things at work, things uh, with Karen's mum, just everything. You just sense it. You just sense that Satan doesn't want this word delivered this week. So I'm just going to ask uh, our elder Bill just to, to pray for me because I'm, I've never quite felt like this way before when I want to deliver the word of God and uh, knowing that this is a word that obviously Satan didn't want to come out. So I'm just going to ask Bill we just bow our heads and just to pray. Father, we come to you earnestly grateful for the one who controls all things, the one who rules all things, and yet we are well aware that we have an adversary, and he is about to, is about like a roaring lion, wanting to devour those, and we pray Lord that your own spirit would rule over us this morning, that he would be in control of our hearts and our minds to be attentive as we hear your word. We particularly pray for Steve that you would be overruling in his heart, within clear thinking, may his mind be in control by your spirit. We ask Lord that your word might go forth as a two-edged sword this morning, uh, rightly dividing uh, between heart and spirit. We pray Lord that you would be uh, the one who speaks to our our hearts this morning. Now, Lord, we recognise that um, you desire that all men come to salvation. And we do pray this morning that um, as your word is preached, that there would be those who would be responding to the call of Christ in their life. We thank you, our Father, for the provision of this place again. And that your word is going forth here. And uh, that we are seeing new faces in our midst. And we pray, Lord, that um, we would be faithful and true to your word. And, uh, Lord, that we would be a separate people, ones that are peculiar, ones that are different, not just for the sake of being different, but because you have changed our hearts and our lives. We pray, Lord, that we would be a people that are ambassadors for you, ones that have been called out to, to serve you and honour you, and that your word might shine forth through our lives. So, Father, we just commend our time to you now and pray that your word would go forth strongly and uh, speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm. A little boy decided to measure himself to see how tall he was. And he uh, got a ruler out and put it beside him and measured himself. And he went to his mum and said, Mum, I'm six foot tall. Well, she was a little bit sceptical how he did that. So she asked him to measure himself again. And she soon discovered that the problem is that the boy didn't take out a 12-inch ruler. He took out a 6-inch ruler and measured himself. Yes, there were six rulers high but he had used the wrong standard. 
Last time I spoke, I mentioned that God is the standard for truth and that everything he says, everything he does is truth. Not because we think it is or because we make it truth, but because God is truth. And this morning it's no different as we move on to God's attribute of holiness. You see, God does not conform to any standard of holiness that we create or that is created by other people. He is the standard of holiness. Therefore, his creation must conform to his standard. We must conform to God's holiness. Exodus 15.11 says that God is majestic in holiness and awesome in glory. We've had a good leader to our talk this morning with our, our leader Pete sharing holiness and holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. We've had our communion table and the beauty of the Lord is his majestic holiness. You know, I think sometimes we need to admit to ourselves that we really don't understand God's holiness like we should. I think we need to admit that. We don't quite understand God's holiness. So that's why we're looking at it this morning in His Word. The Word that He's given us so that we can see His holiness because He has given us everything we need through His Word. So I want to start with a definition. I keep saying to to Jeff, I want to learn this this thing up here and I could have put the definition up for you but time just gets away. These are not my words and when I uh, tried to find who wrote them, I couldn't. So I must have written them down at some stage and didn't source them. So they're not mine, but here is what I believe is a great definition of holiness. The holiness of God is his fundamental and magnificent purity. The standard of righteousness to which the whole universe will be conformed. I'll read it again. The holiness of God is his fundamental and magnificent purity the standard of righteousness to which the whole universe will be conformed. You see, for me, as we come to to holiness and God's holiness, to me it's the centrepiece of his attributes. Of all the things God is and all the things we've spoken about, his sovereignty, his truth, his imminence, his uh, everything, his uh, all-powerfulness, the centre of all those is his holiness. Because God's holiness unlocks the door to understanding and making sense of everything else about him. His love is holy love. His sovereignty is holy sovereignty. His all-knowing is holy all-knowing. His his all-presence is holy all-presence. Everything about God has been infiltrated by this defining attribute of God called holiness. Therefore, if we want to know God, I think we have to have a a handle on God's holiness and what it means and how he's revealed his holiness in the scriptures to us. And to do this, simply uh, at the beginning, I've put it into two elements, holiness into two elements. I'm just going to shortly mention them to you, then go to a, a case study in the scriptures. But the first idea of holiness is his greatness. One of the meanings of holiness is the idea of being set apart. God is totally set apart. 
He is above us. He is beyond us. He is in a class all by himself. There is no other. There is actually a very profound difference between him and those he created, everything he created. He is great. He is grand. He is majestic. He is awesome. He is holy. He is set apart. He is great. We'll get that. We'll have a look at that in the case study a bit later on. The, the second aspect of holiness, and the one that we normally think of, is the idea of being pure. That's the one where, when we think of holiness. That's the, the first thing that comes to my mind: purity. God is pure. God is good. He does what is right. He can never do what is wrong. He's unstained by sin. He's uncompromised by sin. God does not bend a little when it comes to sin. God always acts in a righteous manner because he is holy. He is both great and good. But like always, the best way to understand God, and particularly this morning, his holiness, is to look at his love letter to us, his word to us, the Bible. And a good case study, and the one that I'd like to bring to you this morning, is found in Isaiah chapter 6. You might like to turn to Isaiah chapter 6 with me. You all know this story only all too well, and that's one of the reasons I chose it as a good case study, because I don't intend to exegete this passage, I intend to have a look at God's holiness in it. The setting of Isaiah 6 is after the death of King Uzziah in 739 BC. During this time of transition after King Uzziah died, Isaiah went to the temple to worship and to pray for the nation and to pray for himself. And that's the context that God met him in. There are several things that happen in this vision. The first thing we're going to look at is God's greatness in this vision that Isaiah was given. I'll just read verses 1 to 4. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Jesus, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. I wonder if you can visualise that in particular. I don't think we've seen necessarily seraphim, but we have a great description of them. I wonder if we can visualise the Lord exalted high, the seraphim singing out, holy, 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 the foundation of the threshold trembling, the, the place filling with smoke the train of his robe filling the whole temple. King Uzziah may have died, but when Isaiah raised his head during worship, he saw the ultimate king. He saw the Lord high and exalted. At his side were seraphim. We know that from verse 2. Seraphim literally means the burning ones. Their job was and still is, is to give glory to God. We know from scriptures that these angels were beings that were without sin. They were pure. 
Yet we see this description that with their six wings they not only fly with two of them but they cover their face and their feet before the Almighty God. Why do they do that? Why is it described like that? Well, they shield themselves from the direct gaze of God because of the reverence and awe before the presence of the Holy Majesty. These pure angels covering themselves before the majesty of God. We make a mistake when we imagine God's goodness or his greatness as simply just a, a step above ours. God's goodness, God's greatness is in a class of its own. God's greatness and purity makes the sinless angels blush and seek cover. Notice from verse 3 that the continuous occupation of the seraphim is to praise him. They're crying out. One group cries out to another and the other would answer in, in repetition. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That was the substance of their song, declaration of the holiness of God. To me, this is the, the heart of Isaiah's vision because the seraphim song reveals the tremendous message concerning God. Why is the word holy called out three times? Is it a typographical, a typographical error and they just repeated it? When I did a spell check of my, uh, of my sermon, it came up, do you want this second holy? Yes. Do you want the third holy? Yes. Holy, holy, holy. What's the significance? It can be easily missed. Because the fact is in Hebrew, if they want to do a comparison or a comparative, it's repeated twice. If they want to do a superlative, it's repeated three times. There's only a handful of occasions that the Bible itself, God's word, repeats or elevates something to the third or superlative degree. God is not love, 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 even though God is love. This is superlative. This is to the to superlative degree. Don't miss that. In Revelation chapter 4 verse 8 we have another song, this time being sung by the four living creatures uh, who are called cherubim. They were singing around the throne also and, they, and the, the scripture in Re- Revelation 4 8 says, And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. A different group of angels. That's why we can sing that hymn that says cherubim and seraphim. They're all singing, holy, holy, holy. God is not simply holy, he's not even holy, holy. He is three times holy. And the seraphim and the cherubim, the, cl- the closest beings to our God, the most familiar in his presence, They proclaim his holiness in the fullest expression of who and what the Lord is. Holiness is central to God's character as well as central to his essence. I want to keep going on this holiness. You see, holiness is distinctiveness. Distinctiveness from all others. It distinguishes the divine creator from all other things, including his angels. God is holy in thought, he's holy in word, and he's holy in deed. And then we go back to Isaiah chapter 6 verse 4 and we, we sense the shaking, adds a sense of the awesome presence of the power of God. 
I wish I had the ability to shake this room now, to get that same sense of in the presence of the Almighty God, the room shaking, the temple filling with smoke. These images point us to the majesty of God that should provoke reverence and awe. In fact, I'll go as far to say that true worship only begins when we stop and, and grasp the wonder and power of God, as it was for the angels. Worship begins when we catch a glimpse of God's holiness. The seraphim and the cherubim, they couldn't help when they were in the presence of the Almighty God. So first we see God's greatness. God is holy, 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 set apart, distinctive, all by himself. He's in a class by himself. He has no equal. There is no other equal. There is a profound difference between him and us. A profound difference that should see us fall to the ground in his presence. Holiness means that God is transcendent in his greatness. He's way above us in his greatness. What else do we see from Isaiah meeting the Lord? I think the next thing we see in verses 5 or in verse 5 is God's goodness and man's unworthiness. Isaiah's response to what happened is not what we might have expected. I'm wondering whether we would have said, wow, this is awesome. This is, or today's language, that's cool. Look at all this happening. But Isaiah isn't impressed. He's not wowed or, or, or says it's awesome. What does he say? He's undone. Verse 5, So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, as long as Isaiah could compare himself with other men and women, he was able to sustain a lofty opinion of his character and his holiness But the instant he's measured himself by the ultimate standard, that is God in God's holiness, he was morally and spiritually annihilated. All he could say was, woe is me. The New Living Translation tries to get across the idea, because we don't use woe is me very often, it's all over, I am doomed. It's all over. I'm not going to exist anymore. Woe is me. Here's the glory of God and I'm standing here. I'm done. I'm gone. His first response, I am doomed for I am a sinful man. I can't stand before this holy God. In fact, the first response of any person to the holiness of God should be an acute awareness of our own self, sinless, uh, sinfulness. It isn't. It's like we live our lives with some of the lights off. We're able to hide some of our wickedness in the dark. But when we come into the presence of God, the darkness is gone. The word says dark becomes light in the presence of God. All that's hidden in our lives is exposed. Can you imagine how Isaiah felt before this almighty God? Everything was exposed in him. All he could say was, I'm undone. You see, our problem is that all our Christian lives, we we feel we're doing pretty good in the holiness states. And we feel we're pretty good because we compare ourselves to each other in the holiness states. 
And when we compare ourselves to those, those around us, we can always spot those who are seemingly less holy than what we are. But when we compare ourselves to the standard of holiness, woe is me. And it's at that time that the walls of delusion come crumbling down around us and we say, I'm undone. And that's why I believe that a person who has no sense of their own sinfulness has never really had a true sense of the holiness of God. The person who believes that they did the right things to get saved has no awareness of how deeply stained they really are within. According to this, we must be undone before we can be remade. The Holy Spirit has to awaken us to our sinfulness before we can be summoned to his grace. The third thing we see from Isaiah's episode with the Lord is is God's provision for the fact that Isaiah is undone. What's the outcome? What's God's provision for this statement of Isaiah's? Once Isaiah realises his sin from being in the presence of the Holy God, God, notice what happens in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. We read this and the first thing that comes to our mind is, ouch, that must have hurt. The angel takes his hot coal and touches it to Isaiah's mouth. Why does he do that? Well, I think in the context he cauterizes a sin. Perhaps you've been to the doctor and had something cauterized. Cauterization is the process of sealing a wound destroying abnormal or infected tissue with a heated instrument. God cauterizes Isaiah's lips. The scripture says he eliminates the iniquity. It's gone. Isaiah's guilt is taken away. But it's not shrugged off. I want us to know that. God doesn't say, okay, let's just forget it. That was bad. Instead, the angel tells Isaiah that his sin is now purged. Some of your Bibles will have forgiven. That's what the Hebrew word translated purged is. Forgiven, but it's the word that means to cover. To cover someone, something. If you purge something, this Hebrew word means to cover it. The angel told Isaiah his sin was covered. It had to be covered in the presence of the Almighty God. Using the New Testament language that we now know, we can use the word atoned or expiated. In other words, at that very moment, his sin was paid for. How? How was his sin paid for? Well, it's the same as ours. It was paid for in our Lord Jesus Christ. You might ask, well, how can that be? This is... Isaiah lived 750 years before Christ. How could his sin be covered? How could his sin be purged? There's only one way that can happen is through Christ. Well, we have to remember 
that the promise has been made for a Messiah way back in Genesis. The plan was in place right from creation for the Messiah to come. So God forgave Isaiah on the basis of what Christ was going to do 780 years later. Just like God is willing to forgive you and I on the basis of what our Lord accomplished 2,000 years ago. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid for our sin, for all future sin, but we forget that he paid for all past sin. All the Old Testament saints, God's justice is satisfied from Genesis right through to eternity. And he's able to extend mercy on the basis of Christ's substitution, even for Isaiah. You see, the way to God isn't by trying harder. Isaiah didn't say, oh, I must try harder, I must, I must do this, I must do that, I must go to church more. He said, I am undone. The way to God isn't by trying harder or by cleaning up our act. The way to God is by faith. Faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. When Jesus, the sinless Son of God, died on the cross, he paid for our sin, he paid for the sin of the Old Testament saints. God's justice is satisfied, sin is punished, and he's also able to extend mercy. And I want to tell you this morning that the reason we're called children of God is not because we're good, but because we're forgiven. And we're forgiven not because we're among the best in the class. We're forgiven because Jesus Christ died on the cross. And we need to accept that free gift of salvation. And so God's provision for Isaiah in the sense or in the light of the fact that he was undone, it's all over for him, was to cover his sin. So Isaiah sees God's majesty, he's confronted with his own sin, I'm undone, but he finds forgiveness through the sacrifice of Christ. The last point this morning is that then he is commissioned by God. When the forgiveness of sin is experienced, then our response should be a loving response to follow God. And we see that in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, that's Isaiah, here am I, send me. This is the first time that God speaks in this vision. It's as if Isaiah wasn't ready to hear God before this moment. It's as if the possibility of service could not be appreciated by Isaiah up until this point. Because now Isaiah is willing to serve, not not out of an obligation, but now out of a gratitude and out of a desire to exalt God's glory, as the seraphim were. Isaiah now wants the world to know the greatness and goodness of God. Isaiah is now concerned with one thing. Here I am, send me. He wants to honour the one who is most worthy of honour. Now we've been talking about God's holiness but it would be remiss of me not to 
lead into another, another area of our study and that is in the Bible we're told to be holy as God is holy. So we can't talk about God's holiness and just leave it in his lap. God says, I'll read Leviticus 11.44 For I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy. It's a command that's repeated four times in Leviticus. Jesus echoes that in Matthew on the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So everything we're spoken about God's holiness, even Peter says and quotes um, Leviticus, Peter 1, 1 Peter 1.16, he says, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Now when we hear this command to be holy, we do, I think, one of two things. We just say, well that's impossible, I can't do that. And we just brush it off and forget about it. The other thing we may do is have an image of this thin person with, with hollow sunken eyes, with a beard and sandals and a, and a dress on and a robe and he doesn't tell jokes and he has frequent long baths, he, he fasts, he gets up at 4am in the morning to have hours of prayer, the list could go on. And we think of these holy people. But that's not what God is calling us to. He's calling us to Christ-like living. We're to be set aside for the service of the Lord. Be holy as I am holy. We've often heard, I wonder if you've heard in the church, people ask, why doesn't someone do something? I wonder if we've said that ourselves. Why doesn't someone do something within? Why doesn't someone do this ministry? Well, in God's plans, you may be that someone. You see, the Lord is still asking, whom shall I send? Who's going to go for me? Future hope for this church and for all Christianity lies in the hope of those who hear his call. I wonder as a Christian, if you've ever said to God as Isaiah did, here am I, send me. And if you haven't asked that, why haven't you asked it? The person who's living the life of holiness as we're called to do will first of all be humbly aware of our forgiveness. Yet we'll be diligent in seeking to eliminate any trace of sin from our lives. We will be people who are constantly saying, Here I am, Lord. Use me, lead me as you deem fit. This is what Chuck Colson says. He says, Holiness is the everyday business of every Christian. It evidences, evidences, evidences itself in the decisions we make and the things we do, hour by hour and day by day. The person who's begun to understand God's holiness is a person who is changed. In fact, the idea of an unchanged Christian is a contradiction in terms. If you are not pursuing holiness, there's a good chance you're not a child of God. If you don't care about God's holiness, and if you're not pursuing it, understanding that God says, be holy for I am holy, then you need to look at your salvation. You need to make, uh, take a good look. No matter how long you've been in the church, 
Why do I not pursue holiness? Don't take my word for it. We'll read Paul's in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Paul has told us we are to be imitators of God. We are to walk in love as Christ has walked in love, as a sacrifice. Pastor's already spoken about Romans 12. We are to be a living sacrifice. If we're going to be true followers of God, we must be serious about the pursuit of holiness. Though our study and pursuit of holiness must never end, this sermon needs to end. So let me make several just final observations. First of all, there's no better way to use our time than to use it for God's glory. There's nothing better. There's no one greater than the Lord. He's our life. He's our hope. He's our joy. And so to run after and serve anything other than the Lord is simply foolishness. So we need to look at our own heart. We need to turn away from the trivial pursuits that so often occupy our energy. And as Paul has told us, we need to be imitators of God as dear children. Secondly, we need to take personal holiness seriously. I think we, we spend a good deal of our lives trifling with sin. We, we push God off to one side when we feel like he might be getting in the way of something we want to do, our entertainment. Look, I know better than anyone that taking holiness seriously means significant changes in our lives. And like you, I resist it. But if we understand God's mercy and grace at all like Isaiah did, if we have any sense of God's holiness as we read those passages like Isaiah did and cry out, I am undone, but for the covering of our Lord Jesus Christ's blood, then we would want to get rid of all evil from our lives, everything that we pursue that is not holy. We need, might need to make changes in our entertainment or in our use of the time that we have or in the way we spend our money or the way we talk maybe the way we do our job or the way we treat others, even the way we worship, we may have to look at it and say, I need some changes there. I need to pursue holiness. And finally, we need to stop comparing ourselves to others and start measuring ourselves by the correct standard. The boy at the beginning used the wrong standard for his measurement. We too can use the wrong standard as we measure our holiness we tend to measure by the person sitting next to us. But when we measure our lives by God's standards, we see ourselves, we should see ourselves as we really are. And it should hurt. Facing the truth is painful. Now Pete put something up there that he said, facing that is painful. It is. It's painful. I don't know if you all read every word of that. It's painful. But we must accept responsibility for our own behaviour and realise who we are and who God is. 
And we can only come into the presence of God now because of the covering of our Saviour's blood. One day, people are going to stand before a holy God who do not have that covering. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. One day, those people, and that book, the Lamb's Book of Life is going to be opened and those people will be sent to a second death for eternity. But if you have the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ, you can stand before God. And we will stand before God in his heavenly places. God is great. God is good. Let's devote the rest of our lives to hungering for holiness. And to that end, I've asked Karen to sing a song that I love. It's called Hungering for Holiness. I'll just read some of the words, even though I I think Brenda's going to put them up for us. There's a silent war that's raging deep within me. My lower nature fights to dominate. The spirit is poised and locked in battle with, with the carnal side of me I've grown to hate. Lord, I hunger for holiness. I thirst for the righteousness that's yours, that my mind would be cleansed and my spirit renewed and this temple that you dwell in may be pure.